This is an ABC podcast. For copyright reasons, the music has been edited. 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 To hear the full tracks, listen to The J Files, Thursday nights on Double J. Or head to doublej.net.au and click on the track list at the bottom of each episode. Kaz Tran here. Welcome to The J Files, the podcast for people who love music. Each episode is like a quick music history lesson. We pick a different artist or band, we look at some of the most important moments in their career, and we celebrate their impact on music all in less than 30 minutes. On this episode, it's one of the most essential and influential figures in modern music. David Bowie impacted music in profound ways, often well before the world was ready for such changes. Across a career spanning more than five decades, he released groundbreaking albums like 1972's The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars. Not to mention his epic late 70s Berlin trilogy, Low, Heroes and Lodger, or his huge 80s hits like Let's Dance. Right up until his passing in 2016, just days after he gifted the world his 26th and final studio album, Black Star, this immensely talented shapeshifter was pushing us forward in art and culture. While the 1970s was an immensely fruitful period for David Bowie, he continued to expand and push boundaries in the decades that followed. In 1997, he released his 21st studio album, Earthling. It had electronic, industrial and drum and bass elements and showed yet again how willing Bowie was to flex and change. Of the many gold moments from the Double J archives, ranging from international press conferences to countdown interviews with Molly Meldrum, there's one chat in particular that I wanted to share with you. It's a conversation Richard Kingsmill had with David Bowie in 1997, around the time Earthling was released. The pair spoke for about half an hour and covered everything from David's love for Australia to turning 50 and how to maintain artistic integrity in an increasingly commercial world. So sit back and enjoy this incredible moment from the archives. Kicking off with Richard asking David Bowie where in the world he was phoning in from. I'm uh, on the island of Bermuda, which is... uh the, one of the remotest islands in the world, believe it or not. No, it's not in the Caribbean. <laughs> it's, much, it's, much higher, it's much higher than that. It's, uh, it's about 600 miles off uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, and uh, has absolutely... That's the nearest point to it, 600 miles. That's the nearest place to it. Wow. So it really is very, very remote. 
All right. Is that the what? So is that the most northern part of the Bermuda Triangle? What they call a Bermuda Triangle? Yes, exactly. Yes, that's the apex of it. Yep. That's and uh, if you descend from here. I think you will never be seen again. <laughs> They'll never find you. No trace of you whatsoever. I do believe that some airlines actually avoid that southerly part. They do try and avoid that area, just to be sure, because so many strange things happened in that triangle. So are you living on this island, are you? Well, I'm just having a few days off here because uh, we get back to it next week. Um, we start doing a bit more recording. We've got some ideas for some new songs. And also start preparations for the tour, which will begin in uh, early June, and uh, goes through, hopefully, into Australia. It's looking good this year for Australia. I really think we've got some action and some people kind of you know, actually pulling together to try and make it happen. Oh, that'd be fantastic. So what, before, oh, before, the, before the year's out? I know, it really is important for me also because my wife's never been there and she's, you know, we've often said that we've come down for a holiday but it would be lovely to be working down there as well because usually I can make those things work where we finish working and then I can just get in a motor and we can drive off and spend a few weeks, as, you know, just on regular holiday. Do you, do you have fond memories of Australia? Oh, very much. I, I really, I've got a passion for it. I mean, I really, I really I've driven about an awful lot in uh in Australia. I mean, I did the whole of the East Coast last time I was there. And we went to Kakadu as well. Um, we flew about on a little baby plane. Um, I did I did about six long weeks there last time, and just on holiday. And I had a ball, absolute ball. I loved it. Because often I've been down there, I've been working and all that. But that was the first time I really took a holiday. But I used to have a place there in Sydney. Um, and I was... Uh, I used to go there a lot on my own in my bachelor days. How long ago did you give that, that place up? God, that was quite some time now. It must have been around towards the mid or late 80s, I guess I gave that up. Okay. Just on the subject of your wife, I wanted to ask you this question. And, uh, I mean, all the renewed activity that you've had of late, although you've never really stopped working, you've always been... No, not really. I'm always, I've been... A pretty much a workaholic all my life but everyone talks about this renewed enthusiasm and this new vibrancy i guess because you've been touring I a fair bit it, richard <laughs> <laughs> you don't see it. it doesn't mean a thing to you doesn't mean a thing to me oh. well i was gonna say i mean has it got anything yeah, to do with the fact that you're married now well that, or that you've, you're in a new relationship you know it's really hard to actually pin down why i think uh I don't know, you know, I really don't know. I think it's just a general all-round feeling of well-being uh, in, in a way. I mean, I wouldn't have gotten married if, unless I was in the right place to begin with, you know. It's, it, I, so I won't, I won't go for that one about um, being married has changed my life and all that. It, it hasn't in quite that way. It's, it's completed my life. But um, I felt that I had to be in a pretty good place to have gotten married in the first place, you know. So I think generally things, I just, I've just been feeling a, a lot more comfortable with uh, life and myself and my writing and everything as the years go by. So it's, I just happen to be in a great place. I'm really lucky in that way because I look at some of my mates and some contemporaries and all that and I know some of them feel, I don't know, tired or bitter or, you know, a number of things that traditionally are supposed to go with getting older, you know, and, and, and it's just... I've just been very fortunate that it just hasn't happened to me. I just feel really, I'm pretty keen on everything. 
Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, a lot of people, I would imagine, through reading interviews, they, they get to a stage where when they've done a lot of work, they feel a bit lost. Yeah, I know. I, know. I don't get that because I, 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 really, I really feel myself when I'm working, you know, and I'd feel, I'd feel it'd be really weird to just kind of stop. And uh, I just, anyway, I just like enjoying myself and, and there's no better way of enjoying yourself than playing music. There really isn't. So you're still really getting that much of a kick out of it? Oh, yeah, especially, I think, a couple of people have now said, and um, it's been written about a couple of times as well, that the band I'm now with is, is probably the best band I've ever been with. I mean, it really, is. I really want to bring, I'd love to bring them down and show them off. I mean, they're such a great band. And it's <laughs> a pretty, really it's, a, it's, it's not a stripped-back band, but it's a pretty basic lineup, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's only a four-piece. You know, it's, um, it's keyboards, Mike Garson, who, uh, of course, I, I've worked with off and on for... Jesus, uh, over 25 years. Um, he really, I mean, he did a lot of the piano work on things like uh, the Land Insane album. Um, and he's on, uh, he's on synth, synth and uh, keyboards. And there's Reeves Gabrels, who I really sort of got together with in about 88. And so we've been working together now, it, believe it or not, it's nearly 10 years, Reeves and I, which seems like an incredibly long time. Um, and uh, he's on guitar. And then two new people to me, we're not so new anymore because we've now been working together for about 18 months, Gail Ann Dorsey, who's the bass player, and she's a, a, also a singer and songwriter in her own right. Um, and uh, a guy called Zachary Alford on drums who worked previously. Previously, he, was, he did about uh, a year and a half with Bruce Springsteen. Um, before that, he was with the B-52s. So it's, it's a, good, a good solid lineup of musicians. They're just wonderful. They really are. Yes, well, it was uh, reading the press as well. You say that you did the tour and then you felt so good about it, you're like instantly in the studio recording. That, yeah, that's kind of what came out of it. It was just the, uh, just the, the feeling of, uh, you know, we're, we're bloody good and we really want to kind of get it down on, on record somehow. And uh, Reeves and I virtually wrote an album to kind of show off the band's abilities, you know, it was, uh, and, and kind of where we were at and what the dynamics of the band were and, and all that. I mean, the thing that came to my mind when I heard the album was that I thought it was more instinctual than intellectual. Would you agree with that? Very much. I absolutely agree with you. It was. It really was. And it was written from that level. It was really a gut-written thing. Uh, we just got off on our sweet selves. <laughs> Did you realise it was going to turn into such a great album in the studio or the whole way through the uh, recording process? Oh God! I think we hoped it would because we we thought that the, we thought the quality of the album had to reflect what we felt like we're, as a band, and we're, we're a bloody good band, so it had to be good. Yeah. Do you th do you hear like a lot of people have, and, and myself included? Do you hear the touches of the Bowie of past in in this new uh, repertoire oh, of songs? I think so I think yeah. When I was writing in a very free way when I was younger, I think a lot of that is in there. Um, I think it's unmistakably a Bowie album. I don't, I, I don't think. I, I don't think there's an album around like it. Yeah, uh, which prompts the question, in the past, have you ever stopped and tried to do things against your nature just because you wanted to do something different from all the work that you've done in the past? A leading question. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've done work against my nature, but for not for those reasons. I, I've done uh, the mid... The ir irony, of course, is that two of my best-selling albums, uh, Tonight and Never Let, you, Never Let Me Down, were albums that I really didn't like at all, uh, well, not one bit, and I really was working against my own 
instincts on those and trying to meet what I felt was an audience's expectations of what I should be doing after the Let's Dance thing. And the irony of those things, of course, is that like you, under, you, you don't know, you think, why do people, why would people want to buy those kinds of albums, which I personally don't like at all? And yet, you know, I mean, I remember that Low, which for me was one of my best albums I ever made, sold three or something, you know, it's like, it's, it's so disparate, you know, it's like incredible. <laughs> well, the the 80s, getting back to those 80s albums, the 80s was a very weird time, wasn't it? It was strange. I felt very uncomfortable in it. And I, was, I really, I think probably there's something about the 90s that I really like. I don't know what it is. There's something in the air that I recognise. I think it's all the, fra- all the fragments flying around and all the chaos. It feels really, I kind of, I know this stuff. I feel comfortable in this. Is it, um, is it weird, do you find it weird that you've, that you've got a place in the 90s, given that what you might have thought 10 years ago? Uh, yeah, but I think so, because, you know, around the 84, I didn't know where I was. I really didn't. And I, I was in half a mind to stop altogether and just, just go back into painting and sculpting and all those kinds of things and just do that full time. Um, but really, my, uh, my lifesaver was actually meeting Reeves because he was from a, such a different background at that particular time, exactly the time when I needed it. I mean, his whole scene was, uh, he grew up in Boston, and uh, his whole milieu was the uh, bands like the Pixies and Dinosaur Jr., and, you know, they were the coffee bar crowd that they all used to hang out together. And so I kind of got a taste of all that from him, and it just went on from strength to strength working with Reeves, you know. And I just got back into my old ways of working, which was, in all honesty, just working for myself uh, and just writing for me and not trying to guess what an audience wants. And, and, and that has always been... My best work has always come out of doing that. Do you also see, I mean, the, the, the influence of Reeves Gabrels on you has, you know, has been talked about a lot. And he is an extraordinary, yeah. he's an extraordinary guitarist, isn't he? Yes, he is. Like him or love him. <laughs> <laughs> Does he love that? Does he love that re- reputation of basically... Oh, of course he does, yeah. He's a real subversive. I mean, he's certainly not a people pleaser. And uh, he's... Uh... Do you ever tell him in the studio, maybe, Reeves, you've just gone one step too far this time? Uh, I don't think I'd dare. I mean, he wasn't. He wouldn't... We don't work like that. I kind of say, all right, off you go. <laughs> I'd just, I just get out of his way. Oh, okay. It's, it's free, free reign for him. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, with that influence then on you, when you look back over your career, do you find that for you, your judgment, your best work is always when you've surrounded yourself with musicians that you're fed off a lot? I think uh, because I like collaboration so much, um, I write at my best when I feel that the musicians who are going to play what I write are going to be very inventive with the way that I, you know, with what I give them to play. Um, and I think that what I found in this band are that there's, there are no closed minds in this band. I mean, every musician is open to virtually the best of any kind of music. Garson can listen to outrageous hardcore punk and, and see elements in it that he can relate to in terms of very, very far-out modern concrete or, or jazz. And he can also listen to classical music with the same ear. And this applies to everybody. Both, uh, uh, also, Gail, of course, has got a, a really um, diverse background. She grew up in, uh, was born and grew up in Philadelphia. 
and really trained through the whole soul school, you know, in Philadelphia, growing up with all those musicians. But then she ended up playing with Gang of Four in Britain. So she moved from, like, hardcore soul to hardcore uh, punk and political protest as well, you know. So she's, she's worked through so many different kinds of music in her very, you know, in her short, short career as a musician. So everybody in the band has got major complex influences, and, and you just know that they're not going to play anything. You're not just going to get an average drum beat from Zach. He's going to be very inventive about what he puts down. And Gail is going to have the sensitivity of a soul player, but the aggression of somebody who understands uh, white rock, frankly. You know, So it, it's, uh, it makes for a really complex sounding, a, a, really, a really textured band. You know what I mean? Sure. And what about the influence of drums and bass, though? The jungle feel throughout a lot of Earthling. Oh, yeah, I think, I, I think uh, well, frankly, only on three tracks. The rest of it is, is pretty, pretty standard, either a tech, tech or in, uh, industrial, I guess. Um, but, the, uh, the, yeah, the th- uh, three pieces that I put on there that have got drums and bass on. I, I like it very much as a genre. Um, I actually prefer the early drum and bass. I don't, I, some of it's getting a bit wimpy now, and it's get, they're starting to get too many string pads on it, and it's becoming kind of accessible drum and bass, and I don't like that so much. I like the early stuff when it was really aggressive and mainly black. Uh, that was the stuff that I really liked. But now all the whites have jumped on it, me <laughs> included. Um, it, it, uh, some of it is starting to get, you know... Well, you know, I, I, I don't like the kind of everything but the girl type approach to it, you know, and all that. Um, well, that is the very popular approach to it now, isn't it? Yeah, but that's not what I heard in it. What I heard in it was that was that great cry of the late 20th century, you know. It was really uh, aggressively chaotic. It had this fabulous pulse in the bottom, like a heartbeat, and this kind of chattering dialogue going on over the top and those two elements of the uh, of the the bass and the snare drum really captivated me and I thought this is an incredibly pertinent music to our times you know it really is great it is very yeah so, ca- and, and and that's why in the pieces that we do like battle for britain or little wonder it still has a a real kind of hardness to it a muscularity to it i didn't want it to start getting soft and you know soft and cushy kind of approach How did you feel when you teamed up with Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails and you went out and toured with them? Were you nervous backstage before going out and facing his crowd? Yeah, I was, because it was, as you say, it was his crowd. I mean, it really, it was, uh, his crowd is so kind of hardcore that I think it turned off anybody who might have wanted to come and see me, um, because they're kind of a scary lot, you know. Uh, and it took us about a week or two to adjust to that working situation. I think we had to really regroup very quickly once we got out there and uh, pull our show together in a, in a new, tight, harder way. And I feel that it was uh, an invaluable experience for us as a band. We were also a very large band at that time, you know, it was almost a 10-piece band. Um, and it was incredibly complex to mix. And it's one of the reasons why I brought it down to the small, small group that I've had now for the last year. Um, and I think by the time we got to Mid-America, we thought that this was a great tour, really, really good. But uh, I felt the first couple of weeks were really wobbly. 
Oh, okay. So it, it did sort of have a, a fair, fair bit of effect on the music that you were playing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of, I had to reduce the band. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, I knew that. Were the were the crowds yeah. hostile at all when you went out and performed in front of them no, early on? Hostile. It's just that I felt that a lot of the sound that we had was, uh, uh, it, it, the mix was so complicated trying to mix all those people at once, and especially outdoors. That it wasn't. It just wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, the music deserved more than that. Um, but I think I think overall it was uh, it was a good tour, and I'm glad that we really did it. And by the seventh or eighth week, I thought I thought it was really bloody good. Oh, that's good. Did you, are you quite friendly with Trent? Did you get along well oh, on tour? Very, yeah, extremely well. I like him a lot. He's a very nice guy. Do you like his work? No, we're still in we're still in touch. We often call each other. Okay. Do you like his work? I do. I do, and I'm glad that he was. Uh, I I really felt it, it was big of him to kind of you know. Uh, make a point of how important my work was on, on on what he does you know a lot of things like breaking glasses influence on something like closer you know and, and you know those kinds of things and the, the the sound that i the sounds that i was fooling around with on the uh four albums that i did at the close of the 70s into the 80s scary monsters and low and all those things were a fairly important part of the construction of music that he makes so i was really quite chuffed that uh, he was big enough to say that, you know. Although we were talking about the commercialism of the 80s, it's still very much a commercial world out there, isn't it? Oh, it is very much so, you know. And, and that's the thing that, I, in a way, that I'm glad I went through it to such an incredible degree in the early 80s because I, having achieved all that and done all that, I really felt how uncomfortable one can be in that position if you have another thing in mind. And, and my thing never was, you know, just to be famous or just to have a big hit. It that that was never what for me was the centre of what I wanted to do. What I wanted to do more than anything else is work within music and do my best to move it along or change it or you know add to it or evolve it or make make some kind of textual difference to the whole thing. That's that's the that's the I guess that's the uh, the passion of being an artist. You know, you want to do something like that. And the temptation to kind of go commercial, having gone through that, I know what it, what happens. You end up very empty inside. You really do. There's nothing left of you because you feel as though you really feel like you've sold out or something, in a way. When you start pleasing people, and frankly, I think you please them much more the ones who stay with you if you just do what you really want to do, because I think they appreciate that you're really playing from your heart what what you feel is important. This is what did it mean turning 50 for you? Not being 49 anymore, quite honestly. It, it, you know, I, it's, I wouldn't have noticed if, it, if, if everybody hadn't pointed it out. <laughs> it was one of those things. I just slid from a graceful 25 to a dignified 50. And I didn't notice the years in between. It was just like sure. a blink of the eye. The blink of the eye, and there I was. Yeah. Well, there was a lot of celebra- there was a lot of celebrations going on around the fact that you turned fifty. One that I would have yeah, loved no, to. We really let it hang out. <laughs> uh, did you get a bit embarrassed at one point or at any point? Um, I tell you what, the funny thing was, my wife organised a party after the show, and brought in half the half the people that have ever travelled through my life, uh, from like the last forty years. Um, 
since I was like 10, you know, I mean, uh, I even I had a couple of blokes there that I went to school with when I was like uh, 8, 9 and 10 years old. And it and it ranged from there right through to guys that I'm just working with now recently, you know. And it was such hard work because <laughs> everybody wanted to chat. And of course, I wanted to chat with everybody, but there was like 200 people there, you know. And it was, I was up until five and I couldn't speak by the end of it. Because I'd just done a two-hour show at the garden. And, then, and that, that, seemed like a, uh, that seemed like a doddle compared to the party. The party was incredibly <laughs> hard work. Just getting pulled in all, so, just getting pulled yeah, in all yeah, sorts of directions. Really, it was really strange. It was really strange. But it was just great to see some of the people that turned up. It was wonderful. You must get very tired when you want to wear something or change the colour of your hair or do anything with your music. Everyone goes, why are you doing this, David? But why are you wearing a Union Jack suit these days? Well, I, I don't understand is why anybody should expect that I actually know <laughs> why I do what I do. Half the time, I have no idea. So much of what I do is just intuition. You know, it's just kind of a, a gut response to the times. There was something about the... There was something about the... Uh, I don't know, there was something kind of funny about the Britpop thing. It was like a, a metaphysical empire being created. And, and so my 18th century frock coat in the Union Jack style, much similar, also a pun on the old Pete Townsend jacket of the 60s. Um, but, you know, the one that I've got, if you'll notice, is, is pretty well hacked up and it's torn and deconstructed. It's like the tatty remains of a metaphysical empire. So I suppose, looking out over a field with absolutely nothing in it, I mean, it was sort of, you know, it's kind of, um, it's, it, I have a love-hate relationship with the country. Sure. Did you have to make uh, it? Did you have I, to make I love it? it very much. Did you have huh? to? Did you have to make it that tatty, or was it just naturally tatty through time? No, I, I, I had to actually. No, it all came over all neat and lovely, and I, I, I did. Uh, I, I got a knife out and I ripped it apart a bit, and uh, we poured old coffee over it. I think to make the stains and stuff. But it's a nice bloke that I work with, uh, a guy called Alex McQueen, who's. Uh, one of the major designers in Britain at the moment. He wasn't when I was working with, because we started working together quite some time ago. But he's become this year's flavour now. Um, but he's great because he's terribly subversive. His whole approach to fashion is really, it's really kind of, it's influenced by both Dada and punk, you know. I mean, he, he just took over the, uh, I think it was uh, Givenchy in uh, France and just paraded out his new stuff out there and they gave him so I couldn't believe what he was putting on. <laughs> it was so bizarre and, and out of character with Dior and all that, you know, that I think the press really had a go at him. And he loved it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for your time, David. I really uh, really love this new album. I think it's a, it's an excellent album, and we've started you know playing quite a few tracks off it already. I know. I heard great things. Uh, lots of people have said Triple J have been really on it, and that's that's a knockout. I'm I'm really pleased about that. The next single is going to be Dead Man Walking. Ah, right. Uh, should be out in a few uh, just a few weeks' time, I think. And we did, we've got a fantastic Moby mix. Moby did a wonderful mix of it. And there's another one by, you know, Danny Saber from Black Grape. Oh, yes, 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 yes. He did a, he did a really thumping mix as well. So we've got two really lovely mixes on it. 
All right. Well, look, we might just go out at this point in time with that track, Dead Man Walking, and look forward to those remixes. And, yes, come out to Australia in 1997. We'd love to see you out here again. Really, really looking forward to it. I do hope that we get there this year. And I'm not just saying that. It'd be lovely to come down again. Okay. David Bowie, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. Richard Kingsmill speaking with David Bowie on Triple J in 1997, one of the truly golden moments from our archives. Bowie was a tremendous innovator and visionary. His legacy continues to loom large, and for his many intriguing personas and chameleonic instincts, he is without equal. The J Files is a Double J podcast. Make sure you like, follow and share. Our producer is Gab Burke. Theme music is by Art vs. Science. You can check out Double J anytime on the Triple J app or at doublej.net.au. I'm Cass Tran. Thanks for listening. <laughs>